Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Jason Marvin, a biomedical engineering PhD candidate at Cornell University. His current research is on tendon regeneration, and in particular, finding ways to promote scarless tendon healing. He's an advocate for equity and inclusion in higher education, a Cornell Center for Teaching Innovation Fellow, a graduate resident fellow, an organizer of science communication workshops, and the list goes on and on. Marvin, welcome to Tidbits of Research. You are a current PhD candidate in biomedical engineering at Cornell. But before we get to your current research, I want us to talk about how you started doing research. I've been reading about a number of your research experiences and projects in undergrad. What is your earliest memory in terms of thinking, oh, I really want to do research or research is fun and exciting? Thanks again for having me. I guess the first experience or the time that I first thought about pursuing research was actually the summer before my freshman year of undergraduate at University of Texas at Dallas. I was in a program called, I think it was called Nano Explorers. It was targeted towards more junior high schoolers, but some, I got the exception to attend as like a graduating senior because of the fact that like I was also going there for undergraduate. So they typically host from anywhere to 15, I think, to 20 students and they kind of have the, this unofficial matching process where you go around it's kind of like those extracurricular organization fair club booth things where you just like walk around a giant room except it's just pis and some graduate students talking about like their labs and the projects they'd be having for that summer so i came across a material science booth and i guess research was kind of on my radar from high school because a lot of my classmates had been involved while they were still high school students, but I never really got that into it. Or I guess I shouldn't say I never really got that into it. I just had no interest at the time, to be honest. I was still figuring out like what I wanted to major in for college. But once I got to that um, summer booth, um, I matched with this advisor into a very material science lab, like I mentioned. To be quite honest, that whole summer was a blur. I remember stuff like batteries, um, magnetics. I was doing a lot of oven work. Um, and surprisingly, it actually was the experience that helped me transition into more biomedically relevant work because I realized that that summer, I always thought like, hey, maybe physics could be a cool major. I quickly realized that that was not my calling. And that experience, while I appreciated it, I definitely want something that had more of a focus on human health. It's so interesting that you were able to kind of both have a research experience, but also be able to realize more about what you wanted to do in undergrad and and so early on too. Yeah, I feel like that's super important because I feel as an undergraduate, my own philosophy is that even if you find the lab that you think is the right fit or maybe you do an internship and you're like, that's my calling, I feel that it's wasted time if you don't use all of your years in undergraduate and like wherever you are in your career to figure out like what you actually want to do. So for me, a lot of these experiences that led to each other were not so much like intentional or planned. It was just that I liked something. Sometimes I didn't like it quite as much as I thought I would. So I tried the next thing. Even the, th- the things I did like within that same lab, I'd be like, hey, I want to try out a different project just to get more experience. Because I knew, I think pretty early on, at least after like that first summer, the PhD was on the radar. Though that fluctuated a bit to like what kind of PhD. Um, like MD, PhD, JD, PhD was a thing at some point in my life. And then just the PhD. And I just figured like 
I also came from a small undergraduate institution that had a new program for biomedical engineering. So we didn't have like the most variety in faculty research areas. So like for me, it was a great time to shop around. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was this incredible variety of research projects, at least from someone who knows absolutely nothing about your field, <laughs> um, that you were doing in undergrad. And part of what I wanted to ask was how much of that was intentional? How much of it was kind of a search for a specific project or a kind of like search for um, a theme that's interesting? Or maybe it was in the search for, I'm going to do a PhD. I want to figure out what that life would be like. I think more so the latter. So I guess if I had to like linearize my trajectory or at least put them into chronological order, it was that material science thing. And then I got more into like mechanical engineering. So that's when I started doing more development and fabrication of nanostructures that are used in actually airplanes, bulletproof vests, and also bioelectronic materials that are used for like tissue engineering applications to create artificial organs. So that was really interesting as well. So again, it was kind of like the, I want this person a PhD. And one thing that kind of, I guess, was more intentional for me at some point was I think as a sophomore, I did an internship in the spring semester of my sophomore year. But prior to leaving, I kind of knew I wanted to switch labs again. The material, I mean, the mechanical engineering stuff was great, but I think it was still kind of uh, my advisor at the time had sold me on like there are some biomedical applications, but our main focus is not that. I was actually taking a class with my then advisor, Daniela Rodriguez. She's at UT Dallas. She taught a biomaterials course. And I remember one day being office hours and I told her about my experiences and how I wanted to do a PhD. And she just offered me a position in her lab. And I was like, yes, I will definitely do that. However, I'm not here next semester, but maybe the summer or the fall, I definitely would want to join your lab. Because I think at the time, all I really knew about her is that she did orthopedics, which funny enough is what I'm doing now. Um, though like within our field, I imagine like with yours too, there's a lot of distinctions between even like sub areas. But all I knew of her was that she was renowned in the department as one of the best mentors for undergraduate research. All of our graduate students loved her. And she just had like such a great personality. And her course honestly was one of the best I took in undergraduate. So all the things aligned for me just wanted to get to know her better. So I just took that offer immediately. You were mentioning you were taking her class. She sounded like a super cool person. But then you said, well, she was also really well known for mentoring undergraduate students. Do you think that that was a part of your relationship that kind of like really mattered? I think so. So it's kind of weird coming to Cornell's because I often see that like, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I guess coming into Cornell, I came from like a state school. So I was imagined that like at these Ivy Leagues and private schools with all these like money for research and endowments that the faculty would have all of these great, like very intimate relationships with all their undergraduates, which actually I find that to not be the case on average is that they're a bit farther removed from their undergraduate students. Um, so when I had known that about my then undergraduate advisor, I actually did jump on that offer immediately because of the fact that like I really wanted mentorship. Something I didn't mention was that in a lot of these previous experiences is that I didn't have that much interface with my um, advisors and my graduate students were kind of hands off as well, which for me, honestly, I didn't think was the best approach back then because I was so new to everything that it was often like me alone in the lab, not really knowing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and then for her, it just seemed much more structured while also giving me autonomy over like, she trusted that like, I knew a lot of things and techniques that she offered me a project off the bat that was right within my comfort zone. 
but also gave me opportunity to work with like a graduate student, another undergraduate. So everything was just like, wow, this really sold me. There's so much opportunity to learn. It also sounds very empowering. Like it sounds that it kind of also gave you enough opportunity to like grow and consider your own agency as you were exploring the research. Exactly, because I think for the PhD, I don't think anyone knows what the PhD means as an undergraduate, even in, unless you're like your parents are both PhD holders. And even then I feel like you still don't quite understand everything about that career path because there's so many career paths. Was that like, I thought that I wanted to do academics pretty early on because I was also TAing back then as well. And I just never really knew what that looked like. So I, I mean, you sit in these classrooms for three to four years or more depending on your situation. And you just don't really learn a lot about what they're doing outside of the classroom. And so this was like the one time that I had like an engaged mentor who would talk to me about things outside of the classroom and research and would talk to me about like, you know, how am I writing my grants this month? Or what does that process look like? Also, it was one of the first times, I think this is so important to me now is that she was first and foremost caring for our well-being as students and individuals. So one thing that I think she did phenomenally was that she always had these big gatherings at her house. She always makes us like these cheese puffs and all these big spreads of food. All the undergraduates came, all the graduate students came and mingled. I just always missed those times because it was such a nice, especially with COVID now, we can't have anything like this. But it really bridged that sentiment that you can both be like, an engaged mentor, academic, and also like a human being, which I feel like we're sometimes taught to make that barrier. But I do want to piggyback on something you said, which was you were doing all of these research projects, and some of them were with graduate students. Those were kind of your mentors. And what kinds of things did you learn about graduate student life from those relationships that informed your opinion of what grad school would be like? Yeah. And did those things end up being as you envisaged them back then? Yeah, it's interesting because I think in total I had like five to six distinct experiences and each one involved a mentor in some form. So I definitely know my first few graduate mentors were just kind of AWOL the whole time. They just, I kind of felt at times they just kind of were sad because they thought they were stuck with me. And they probably were that graduate student that got left with the intern over the summer. I don't think they had any experience mentoring, which is not their own fault either, but they just didn't know what to do with me. So I feel like those first few summers were not productive. One of my first summer experiences I remember was after my sophomore year, I went to Germany for an international experience um, conducting research. And that was weird because, I don't know, you're also adjusting to like a whole different culture. And for me, I was very intrigued by the German world culture and seeing how they operated. So I worked at an institute and it was a bit strange as well because my mentor at the time, she was a graduate student. Uh, fun fact, she was actually in the same internship program I was participating in. And then she later came back to Germany for a PhD, um, but she was pregnant at the time. And we worked up a lot of materials and reagents that were definitely not the best things to be around when you're pregnant. So she couldn't physically be in the lab. So that was a bit hands off which kind of became like a recurring theme in my life. I feel like a lot of my mentors were either like on honeymoons or I remember one time one of my mentors just had twins. Um, but I think like from these mentoring experiences, what I've learned is that from being a graduate student at least, it's hard because like the ones I remember the most, one person was like in a different country. Um, one of my mentors an undergraduate was an MS student. So I got to see into graduate school life but it wasn't quite the PhD experience because they are very much focused on, you know, getting their dissertation out, going to industry. So I guess similar, but the timelines weren't 
quite the same. I think the closest I got to seeing what it was really like being a PhD student was when I spent the summer after my junior year at UC Berkeley through another RU like program, um, research experience for undergraduates. She was kind of my mentor at the time, Shannon. She, I think, was in her second or third year for a PhD. And I at least, I feel like that's kind of where a lot of us start kind of figuring out where our project is going in a dissertation. And so getting to see that and working alongside her, another graduate student who was a bit more senior, Megan, that was cool for me because I got to see in real time how they were developing their own ideas and how that would lead to potentially like another three to four years of that work. And from like how they advise me, there are a lot of things I love that I incorporate to my mentorship now. So definitely a lot of practices of, you know, helping my undergraduates prepare for presentations or posters and such. Um, to things that like some mentors were not, you know, as great that I mentioned. So it's kind of like, what is that saying? Um, I don't know, the one where basically, if it's not broken, don't fix it, or if it ain't broken, don't fix it. So just kind of having both sides of like what I liked and what I didn't like and merging them into like one unique style. It does sound like you had a number of, I guess, unfortunate research experiences. For someone else, maybe they might have become discouraged in spite of maybe liking the research well enough. But if, I don't know, you're having no mentorship, then that might make you say, well, that's not for me. What do you think kind of kept you going? I think just stubbornness. So one thing for me personally was that, like, as a queer scientist, I had, I mean, I was born and raised and going to school in, like, the Dallas area, which is quite conservative. And I wasn't, like, out professionally or personally until, like, I think after my sophomore year. So a lot of I think my ambition now and back then was the fact that I want to become like visible as a scientist and kind of empower those in my community to realize that there's also opportunities for them. And I think what helped was that no one except for actually one advisor told me that I shouldn't be in science. That happened once to me and that was kind of demoralizing, but I quickly realized that I didn't like that person anyway. So that's kind of like advice I tell people too is that if you don't respect that individual anyway, and they didn't respect you, them telling you things like you don't have a place here or you don't belong in science doesn't really mean anything, to be quite honest. Like the criticism you get, you have to kind of brush it off and kind of filter off based off of who's giving it to you. Do I will acknowledge that like that is not the case for all scientists. And I definitely know that for more marginalized individuals in STEM, these can be much more traumatizing, which is why I try to be as engaged as I can with my mentees to show them that they belong in science regardless. And I think that's like one thing Cornell does really well at is like having all these different initiatives and mentoring programs specifically to retain more marginalized and minoritized students in STEM. A common theme that one can tease out when start when one starts researching you, as I have done, <laughs> um, is an appreciation for this collaboration and networking within the scientific community. And you attribute part of this to um, your involvement in that program in Germany. Tell us a little more about that experience, maybe perhaps as it pertains to the insight it gave you into the values of a healthy scientific community, and especially the international aspect of it. The reason why Germany was such a pivotal point in my academic trajectory was that I consider myself an extroverted introvert. And so up until that point in undergraduate, I was pretty shy. I didn't talk to that many people. I was very much like having my face in like the books and doing like classwork. And whenever I wasn't studying I was in lab so I basically was a robot back then and then going to Germany I think just kind of that was also when I was still navigating like coming to terms of my queer identity 
and being open about it with like all these other nerds from all over the world. So like my best friend from my summer experience was from Barbados and he actually was doing his undergraduate in Canada. And here we also have like friends from Nepal and we had friends from the UK and we were all just like traveling together every weekend after like getting a full week of lab work done. I think that international experience was just so transforming because in addition to that, when I was with my host institute, all the German students and researchers were just so welcoming. I feel like I was very much included. There were times where like they would speak German only and I'd be like, hello, I'm sorry. I have to be that person that's like, I don't quite understand what anyone's saying. But I think just seeing how they operated was so refreshing because they also kept a pretty good balance in their life. Like a lot of the students would come in around like eight or nine and leave by five. Every day we would walk together to the cafeteria or the canteen to get lunch together. Even if you brought your own lunch, you'd walk over with everyone too. Um, and I remember there were weekly coffee meetings I loved so much because they were kind of informal research talks or not even research. I think sometimes a lab would just get together and sit in like the office. Um, one person that week is in charge of bringing dessert. So often they, people would bring like their own baked goods and then everyone would just sit there for two hours and then go back to work afterwards. And I thought that was great. And it built so much community within the lab group and the department. I just feel like that's something I really wish I could embody more of because I do think like as a PhD student, you kind of strike a weird balance between your personal life and also work and try not to overwork and not to burn out and maintaining your mental health. I struggle with that balance quite often, but I think just remembering that experience tells me like it's definitely doable and people achieve a lot of productivity, a lot of having to work insane hours that are not, you know, feasible for most people. Collaboration wise, I don't know. It was just so interesting because you hear so much about collaboration, I think, wherever you go, especially as prospective PhD students, every program will try to sell you on collaboration. And just to see it in action, like collaboration in the sense that like when I was in Germany, there were scientists from all over the world. So I wasn't like the only American in the room. There were people from Austria. There were people from Belgium. Um, I met people from all walks of life and then they all just kind of unified together under the umbrella of science. And they all spoke the same language, like literally the same language, like German and also like science. And I just thought that was so cool. And it really pushed me to really want to pursue the PhD because I was like, wow, this is just so cool. I've never seen anything quite like this. Cause like in America, I feel like up until that point, Texas is very much kind of homogenous. <laughs> Everyone kind of comes from the same neighborhoods, especially my undergraduate. A lot of us came from the same high schools. So it was just so refreshing to get this new perspective and meet people from like literally different backgrounds. It sounds so transformative on so many levels. You were mentioning that it is transformative, but it sounds like it affected your personal life. It affected how you engage with research, your confidence and everything. It's amazing. When you applied, did you have any idea of like, oh, this will be different? When I applied, I didn't remember that much about the program so it's kind of like you're doing your googling and over winter breaking like summer research us biomedical engineering and then you just kind of change up the keywords and go abroad summer research for us students um and that came up when i was applying to it i actually thought nothing of it because until that point in my life i had never traveled abroad outside of going to taiwan where my family is from so i had no experience traveling abroad especially alone that's something intimidating to me that I'm surprised I actually went through with it. I remember having no expectations. I was actually waitlisted at first. I remember that I got the email and I was interning at the time. And I was like, oh, you know, oh, well, I have like other programs to wait to hear from. 
and I was actually about to accept another offer at a different institution in the U.S. And then they emailed me saying, hey, actually, we have selected you as a intern in this cohort for Germany. Do you want to chat more about this opportunity? I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I'm free. Like, let's just see where this goes. So the research I applied to, actually, I had not much familiarity with either. It was also biomedically relevant, but I had no expertise in that either. So it really was, I think, just the novelty of going out of my comfort zone, really drawing me into the experience. So switching into your current research at Cornell, which is in tendon regeneration, how did you get involved in research in tendon injuries? So I'm going to be quite honest. I didn't know that much about tendons other than like they exist and that people often eat them in pho and a lot of Asian cuisine. So I got to Cornell for my visitation weekend. Our graduate field assistant, Belinda, had created this roster for me, an agenda for like meeting with faculty. I was on an off weekend because I had a conflict of a different PhD visit. And I remember she added my now advisor, Nellie Andaras Piri, to the agenda. And she said, yeah, you'll love her. She's great. She's newer to Cornell, um, also in orthopedics. And I was like, oh, cool. She didn't have a website back then. So I was like, uh, I don't know what to expect. I'm not really sure. Let's just go into it. No expectations and see where the conversation goes. And it was, I think, one of the things that drew me to Cornell was meeting Nellie. It reminded me a lot of my undergraduate PI at the time and that they were very engaging individuals. You could tell a lot they care about their students just from the words that they were using. Like, it was very clear that it was not a facade. Whatever she was saying about her current students was very genuine. And we actually talked about not very much research for most of my 30-minute meeting with her. And then I think it was just the mentor fit alone was what drew me to her research. And I think when I applied, I had kind of molded myself as someone with broad interest, which was true because, again, my undergraduate didn't have a lot of research areas to explore. So I said, like, I'm open to whatever systems biology, tissue engineering, journey to medicine. Y'all do, like, stem cell stuff, whatever. That sounds cool to me, too. Like, everything just sounded cool to me. So when I was interviewing and meeting with faculty, literally every faculty meeting, I was starstruck and just saying, wow, I could get to work on this project. And I think that's just so fascinating. And I can't believe I have this opportunity. Ultimately, it was just kind of, I had Nelly on the back burner of my mind all of those months leading up to my move in August. And we had been in contact. So like it just kept reinforcing this idea of like, yeah, tendons are cool. It does go to show the power of mentorship, of like good mentorship, right? How much it can help when your advisor like actually, you know, cares about you. Yeah. And I think again, like 30 minute meeting, you may think that like that's not enough time. And I often give the same warnings to the students because a lot of my undergraduate mentees have gone into PhD programs now or they're starting this year. But um, I always tell people be very cautious as you speak with current students and faculty, make sure everything lines up. But honestly, everything she was saying, I was like eating it up. She was just so candid about what she thought. And I just think that even as like a young or I guess old undergraduate starting soon to be PhD student, you could tell when people are again, putting up like an image just for recruiting versus they actually care about you and they want to make sure you come here and that's the best fit. I'm going to switch gears a bit and start talking about writing. And I'll actually start with writing grants. You had a first author publication in the Journal of Prosthodontics around your senior year. And then you wrote a grant proposal in order for the project to be continued. Grant proposal writing is this like huge chunk of academic life and it has a pretty bad rep out there. Tell us a little bit about that process and whether you think it has affected your current views on the whole writing aspect within your academic life in any way. I think it's it's unfortunate because like that was one of the few grants I've written, like a true grant that's not like a fellowship application, which those are also real grants, but they're a lot shorter in length. 
like the NSF GRFP, that's a two-page proposal. Um, when I wrote that, it was funny because I had graduated. I was also working on my paper at the time. And the history of that grant was that it was with Doxa Dental, which is a company based in Sweden. They make dental cements. Um, and their whole spiel is that they have like this novel formulation that they think is much more biocompatible. So meaning that it can actually interact more positively with the cells living inside of your mouth. So like there's bone, there's gum cells, and they said that their, their formulation has been tested and it's very safe and effective. So we had a project already going with them for a whole year. That actually was my senior project, was that paper that got published in the journal Prosthodontics. And it turned out really well. Like the results were very compelling. They were happy. And we had like monthly meetings throughout the year. So when I had graduated, the goal was to spend that into an MS thesis for another student coming in. So at that point, I had already begun my PhD program. I had started this immersion term for biomedical engineering where we're in the New York City hospitals. So I was shouting clinicians and doing like clinical research the entire summer while also trying to balance writing a grant because it was a bit more time sensitive because, you know, that's one thing I learned very quickly is that like these deadlines are no joke. You have to really get them in on time because there's no forgiveness if you're late. And I think that it was such a cool experience because I never imagined that an advisor would entrust like barely a graduate student, like just like only two months ago was an undergraduate student to write a six to eight page proposal about like what they think the next two years should look like and why they should give us like, I think it was $50,000 or something. I just felt like imposter syndrome hit me really badly that whole summer because I just thought, you know, I'm not qualified to write any of this. I'm kind of just like pulling things out of thin air. Um, I'm just kind of like reading everything I can possibly to get an idea of like what could be feasible. And so I got the word back pretty quickly from my advisor and the company that it was funded. I think it was sometime, sometime in the fall semester. So in 2017 and it was funded. So I was super excited about that. And I think having that be my first success was definitely a good confidence boost in academia because I was like, oh, great. I don't, I'm not like a failure. I can definitely write things that will get money. And my advisor had made very minimal edits. So everything was like awesome. Um, it gave me like I think a boost I really much, I really needed in my first year here that I think everyone goes to some similar struggle to some extent where you're like questioning if you're qualified to be in like in your cohort or whatever. And honestly, I love writing. I mean, I, it's a love hate thing. I definitely like seeing the final product. The steps leading up to that are more painful, but I think it just made me so appreciative of the whole process. And I have used a lot of like those foundational skills since in my PhD. You are very actively involved in science communication. What do you think science communication brings into our world today? Ooh, I think science communication is very much a timely need because, I mean, just the other day, I saw a scene in an article, the headline that new coronavirus vaccine has mRNA, which are cells that create blah, blah, blah. And everyone on Twitter like blew up and was like, mRNA is not a cell. Cells have mRNA. Um, but things like this, where I think that often people without science backgrounds, which is totally fine. Like a lot of the best science communicators don't have a, you know, any formal education in science. They just have experience. But I think without consulting scientists on like what goes out to the public, which is so important, especially now in our current political climate, I think that's such a huge issue. And for me, I think science communication is something that regardless, I used to think that 
if you do science communication, you can only do that. And that's your career. Like you can't be a scientist and a science communicator, mm. which is totally false if you think about it, because we're, that's literally, as PhD students, so much of our job is communicating our findings with other scientists, um, depending on the nature of your work, also communicating with the public, funding agencies. So like, there's just so much of a need to be able to identify who your audience is and target the message you're trying to send. Because if no one else cares about your work besides you, ultimately, you can't get much done in the world. And I think that for me, it's just been such a revelation knowing that like I can both be someone that wants to go into academics and become a professor while also wanting to, you know, change this narrative that like science communication is like an alternative career because it's not, you sh everyone should be engaged in it. Um, but also trying to foster like the sentiment that it's very much needed and encouraging like graduate students, undergraduates and faculty and everyone who identifies as like a scientist to uh, incorporate it into their professional development. You are a organizer of a number of science communication workshops. And as you were just saying, you think that researchers have this need right now these days for explicit science communication training. How do you think we got here? This is a very philosophical question. <laughs> but yeah, it seems that as grad students, it is something that we often have to do. But somehow, later in someone's career, it feels like less of a priority. You can definitely see that. I feel like sometimes as you get older in academia or tenured, you just stop caring as much about how to deliver things. And you're just like, yep, I'm good. I'm here to stay, like, regardless of how I put this out, you'll read it and whatever. So it's actually interesting. I'm going to kind of reference back to my sophomore year internship because I actually was interning full-time in the Texas House of Representatives as a science policy intern. And in that, I think, actually was one of the catalysts for why I decided to get involved in, like, CompSciCon and organizing those workshops as a graduate student because as an intern, I was a sophomore with uh, engineering training like probably the only person in that whole building for a, like a huge radius that had formal STEM education. And I would get meeting requests from constituents, which included physicians, um, faculty from different universities in Texas, et cetera. And when you met with them, there was just no agenda. These renowned faculty and researchers and physicians, they just come in and say like, I want you to give us funding for this. And I'm like, great. I am totally for giving more money to science, but you're gonna to have to give me a bit more direction as to like, what is the issue you're facing right now? Like, what does your community need? What is the want? Like, is this legislation you want us to push forward or do you want us to advocate for current legislation? And I also found that if people just go into it saying like, I want more money and that's not enough. You have to make people care because you have so little time in these meetings that you really have to be concise and effective. And oftentimes it actually was detrimental because some of these scientists and physicians would come in and say like, actually, I'm in like particle physics and I very much appreciate if you gave us more money and like condensed matter physics people or like quantum physics people don't need, basically they, they would prioritize their needs over others. Uh, and I was always like, your goal shouldn't be to fight within your community in science to see who should get more funding. Like everyone should get more funding. So like you need to really form like these coalitions. Um, so that's kind of like what I really think has led us to this point because scientists have become complacent and we're very bad advocates in general, which is why we need this training. What would you say was the most challenging thing as you were interning at the Texas House of Representatives? Was it this kind of like interaction? No, definitely. I mean, the most challenging things were things that were not so much driven by the data or the science. Definitely like the more social issues, I think were more draining on me personally. But I think it was kind of challenging because sometimes I wanted to 
not scream, but I want to yell like, I'm on your side. Like I'm a scientist, I understand too. Granted, I'm a sophomore, but I understand where you're coming from. Because I think often when they see you as someone who works in a political office of uh, like the representative, they already assume sometimes you're against them and that they're really trying to convince you. And I'm like, you should be convincing me, but it's hard because I also have to be impartial because I can't let my political beliefs impede their meeting because it's not fair to them either. Um, and keeping that in mind when I'm also giving these meeting notes to like my chief of staff and other people in my office who are higher up that report directly to our representative. So I just feel like there's a lot of bureaucracy and hierarchy to like how it operated. And I just feel like it's not too much different from academia, honestly, but I think that was the hard part for me. Do you think that experience has affected the way you currently present your research? I think so. When I'm giving talks to um, people outside of my department, so sometimes I give research talks to like my undergraduate residents that live in West Campus at Cornell because I'm a graduate resident fellow. I do try to really put a lot of time and effort into forming like very accessible analogies. I'm like a big proponent in like in science communication that science communication isn't dumbing your science down either because that's very offensive. Like even kids, like when we do outreach, they understand a lot of what we're telling them. You have to treat them with the respect they deserve. And it's just kind of finding the vocabulary that people are familiar with and then just help them. Cause like again, I think this is just like a general science communication thing. Like you have we have as PhD students been in our wheelhouse for so long. We have tunnel vision. We really much know like why we care about our work, but for the most part, others that are just getting to hear about it don't quite know and don't care yet. So we have to really give them the full story of like how we got to this point. And I feel sometimes people will just jump straight into like the exciting parts they think are exciting. So like the data and whatever they found, but I just think the full story is always nice because then you actually show also part of your, I think trajectory and like how you got to that point in your research, I think is so important, especially for inspiring youth to pursue STEM degrees. For me personally, when I hear about other people's research, as soon as they kind of embed it into a certain kind of narrative, it becomes more motivated, they become more human, it kind of like alters the entire experience. Exactly. And I think that's also advantageous for us to do this often because you get great feedback. I've gotten like such cool feedback from other people just on like general directions of the big picture of my work because people can say like, wow. I didn't know tendon injuries were so prevalent and that like almost a third of the population will develop one at some point in their lifetime. And it's especially prevalent for women. What are some really surprising and then very insightful questions that you've been getting? I think one question I've gotten was actually from an undergraduate student and they asked me about health inequity and the accessibility of the research that I'm doing. So not like an attack on my research as in that like, I don't think this will be accessible for most people, but thinking about like orthopedics, um, when I think about orthopedics, it's very much like sports medicine, very like a lot of the best clinicians and surgeons are in like New York City. And oftentimes that like diagnosing these conditions comes after the fact once you've already had the injury for people to get like screening regularly and to actually have like checkups to see if they're at risk, especially because like a lot of these at risk populations don't typically have great healthcare access. I do think a lot about how like you know, I work on tendon regeneration. So ultimately the goal is that if someone has an injury, we can engineer them a therapeutic that will either help the healing process naturally. So that way they don't get scar formation or we can give them some like tissue engineered therapeutic that can help replace any lost tissue. But the cost of that is gonna be, I imagine quite high. And again, 
I don't know if it's going to be primarily like athletes who are also one of the most at-risk populations of getting these injuries. Is it going to be mostly athletes? Like, how do I think about the big picture context of my work? And I think that it's important as scientists also remember that, like, ultimately, like, our work has impact. Even if you're in the basic sciences, knowing that, like, your work will set the foundation for a lot of things. And that's something that, again, I'm not sure how to address now because I agree that, especially with COVID, it's exacerbating all of our existing health inequities. So especially, like, with it affecting primarily, like, Latinx and Black communities, I think about like, how do I make sure that like, as a scientist, I can get it to that point where people don't kind of associate like sports medicine with affluent white individuals. Like that's very much a narrative at the moment. Um, and I think a lot of that also stems back to science communication and advocacy um, and making sure that we have good health insurance for all and that people that we typically would not reach with our science also get to hear about it and let them know that like, this is gonna be a reality for you too. And we're gonna make sure that we work on that in addition to the scientific breakthroughs that we're pushing. It's hard too, because I know I recently gave a diversity statement workshop with the Center for Teaching Innovation here. Um, I co-facilitated one and while doing my background research, I learned that in clinical trials, only 10% of patients enrolled are actually from like racial or ethnic minority groups. So predominantly 90% of the patients are like white. And we're basing a lot of these medical data and findings off of like a primarily white population that is not reflective of our you know, country. And that's so problematic because like now we are seeing all these emerging issues where like we know that, for example, a lot of these issues that we've associated with like genetics, they're not just genetics. There's a lot of things that are tied to like generational trauma and oppression that manifest in health. There's so many issues and I think biomedical sciences that need to be addressed and clinical trials are like one key step i think and that's something with like covid for example that i'm very anxious about seeing like where the data will take us because you know i don't know they want to be a downer but i just always wonder like who will actually get priority in getting this therapeutic like a vaccine if it's to come about soon will we actually have the capacity in the u.s to ensure that it's distributed equitably and that you know we're not prioritizing certain demographics only no good answers yet. Just watching. You are very active on Twitter. And one of the things that you seem to be very involved with is promoting the accounts, posts, or opinions of other scientists. How does one like increase that network in order to find these people and give them the voice and the kind of like public recognition that they otherwise wouldn't have? So Twitter is funny because I got into it on accident. I just was one of those people that had a Twitter account for I think several years and I just never touched it. I lurked for maybe a month before I gave up on trying to figure out how to operate it because it's not intuitive, I think, compared to other social media platforms. I think in terms of like amplifying uh, marginalized voices in STEM and diversifying your network is like you just start off by following diverse scientists and having the comfort zone to like branch out and don't ever expect other communities to educate you because I think that's a huge lesson for everyone, especially now is that take it upon yourself to learn about, about the issues that they're facing. Um, and how you can be an ally because allyship is, you know, it can't be taken for granted. And I think one thing that I just really got into is just taking a lot of time just to understand like where everything has begun and like why has this all kind of like, like what are these issues that people have faced, listening to them. I have like an okay size following, I think like 3000-ish is not a lot I consider in Twitter world. I don't tell people like how to run their Twitter, but depending on what you're using it for, I think that if you are aspiring to be like 
uh, academic Twitter, for example, I think that it is important to amplify other people around you and uplift them. I just feel like as academia grows and learns from a lot of its problematic challenges that's currently facing, that's just like one small step we can do online to help fix it. I think it helps that like I'm a part of like the queer community on Twitter. So there's like a huge queer STEM community that in itself has introduced me to so many people. Just be more active, I think, because if you're not super active on Twitter, I think it can be kind of overwhelming when you log in one day and like one day it's Wormgate and people were fighting about CL again. And then the next day um, you're missing all these great posts or not great posts, all these like, you know, very sad and upsetting posts like Black in the Ivory that people need to see. Um, but unless like you're engaged in it, you might miss, all, miss out on that one moment that's really pivotal for like your growth. Sometimes the, the thing that fuels a lot of people, just the science community in general, is, oh, what we want to do is increase scientific literacy. And then on the other hand, some people are like, well, what you want is to create the medium itself more welcoming and open and diverse and curious. Do you think that if we don't do that at the same time, or if we don't focus actively on just creating a better community, that increasing the scientific literacy is going to like just do better anyway? Yeah, I guess it's interesting because there are a lot of people who understand the risks of like vaccinations and the science behind them and like with wearing masks, but they choose to ignore it because they've just chosen to believe that, you know, whatever their risks are by not doing so outweigh the potential disadvantage or the cons of it. A lot of the issue I see is that people will often associate like people who are not scientifically literate with like certain political beliefs or certain classes. So like there's a lot of classism in STEM, I think, that people associate that like, you know, those from um, low income backgrounds um, that, you know, may be more conservatively, conservatively leaning are not ones that are receptive to science literacy. And I think that's a huge, huge downfall of that mentality, because I think that we should be working to make it more accessible, like you mentioned, to a broader demographic. And I do think that to some extent, scientific literacy, again, like the evidence alone is never enough to really drive change. It also comes down to a lot of different factors. I think individualism is so important and that like, as an individual, like as a scientist, you have so much agency and be able to like, engage in these difficult conversations with people you are close to and try to help shape their thinking and help them become more reasonable. Because I think a lot of the issue of scientific literacy is that a lot of people were just socialized away and that you're challenging how they were brought up for possibly decades of their life, especially for like older adults. And I think if anyone tried to tell you like your way of thinking is like contradictory or offensive or dangerous, that kind of rhetoric is so, I think, hurtful for a lot of them. And so like while it's definitely upsetting to see all the news of people who like don't want to take this vaccine if it comes out, I try to like ultimately frame it back to like where I think they're coming from and how we can possibly work through this gradually. So a lot of it also is like, how do we plant these seeds in their minds so that it continues to grow? So maybe like starting with like STEM outreach, it's definitely hard because you don't have that much impact sometimes in like a one-time event. But if you can plant that seed and help them kind of like challenge that belief and kind of have them grow more independence in their thinking, that might be one way to hopefully give way to more scientific literacy. And I think until then, I don't know, it's hard. I think people just have to be very respectful in how they approach scientific literacy because I think it's also demeaning and patronizing sometimes when some scientists look down upon 
the public, not the public, because I hate the word the public, but like non-scientific non-scientific audiences, but also um, you know, it's a conversation. Everyone's an adult. Just know when to disengage when it goes aggressive or malicious. That's all I can really say. And it is at the end an opportunity to learn about each other. Yeah, and I think that people will be surprised that if you look at it, the reason why some of these individuals are so against like vaccinations or something along those lines is if you look at historically, there's going to be a lot of very good reasons for why they're that way. And a lot of it is very politically driven. So there's a lot of external forces at play. We are social creatures. We don't operate in a vacuum. Exactly. And politics determines what we study. So always keep that in mind. I hate when people say scientists shouldn't be political because we, that's just, I don't know, counterintuitive to like the whole essence of science is that like we're primarily driven by government funded taxpayer dollars and a lot of what our agendas are are determined by the government, which requires advocacy. So we're not apolitical. Jason Marvin, thank you so much. This has been so amazing and so inspiring. It's been wonderful to chat. Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. I want to thank once again Jason Marvin for joining me today. One big thing that I was left with at the end of this was that changing the narrative in science has never been as important as it is today. The pandemic has shown the entire world the existing health inequities in our society, and it has horribly exacerbated these inequities. The value of science communication and advocacy cannot be understated. We touched on some important tidbits today, from the fact that only about 10% of clinical trial participants are from racial or ethnic minority groups, to the value of being aware of the impact of our research or the importance of amplifying marginalized voices in STEM. I hope it's given you some bits to mull over, as it has for me. You can follow Jason Marvin on Twitter at Jason C. Marvin. This episode was edited by Candice Limper. Our music is Float and Fly by Golgartelli. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.